welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series two, which we're starting with this session, series two, episode one. And this is the work of John the Baptist. Now, series one dealt with the childhood of Jesus, the birth narratives, all the miraculous events that happened around the birth of Jesus, then the escape to Egypt uh, when Herod the Great threatened uh, the life of Jesus, the return to Galilee and Nazareth, and then finally in the last episode of series one, episode 13, we discussed the incident when Jesus was 12 years old and went up with his family to Jerusalem and met with the religious leaders in the temple. And that was uh, where we finished series one. Now, we haven't got any information about uh, Jesus's life from then onwards until uh, his public ministry. And so we're now moving into, into that era. And Jesus's public ministry is initiated by John the Baptist, who starts his preaching and baptism work uh, before Jesus appears publicly. So I think you would do well to imagine Jesus's life up until this point as uh, living uh, in Nazareth, working with his father in the family business, carpentry, building, woodworking, and uh, living an ordinary but very godly life in Nazareth. But now we come to John the Baptist. And in the first series, of course, we told the story of the miraculous way that John was born to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were very elderly and uh, apparently unable to have children. But suddenly John was born in their old age and prophetic words indicated the remarkable ministry that he would have as a prophet in Israel. So that's what we heard of John the Baptist earlier on. But now uh, we take up the story and we're going to take it up in Luke's Gospel, chapter three. As with so many incidents in the Gospels, there are parallel accounts, in this case, in Matthew three and Mark one. But we're going to use Luke's account. It's the fullest account of uh, the work of John the Baptist and the opening of his ministry. So I'm going to read from Luke 3, verses 1 to 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the Tetrarch of Etruria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley should be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. 
The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all, he locked John up in prison. Well, this really is a very interesting and dramatic story. And John, John's life is portrayed very vividly by Luke, who starts by anchoring it all in history. Sort of phrases in the New Testament we don't often look at very closely. But he describes at the beginning in verse 1, and two, some of the historical context. He talks about which year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor, uh, these events took place. He describes who's ruling in which parts of the country. After Herod the Great died, we mentioned Herod the Great in terms of Jesus's birth, uh, the country was divided up into different sections. And by the time uh, we get to this particular period, the southern area around Jerusalem is ruled directly by the Romans. They've got a governor. They had one of Herod the Great's sons there, but he proved to be a pretty useless ruler and was uh, forced out by the Romans. So they've got their own direct rule taking place. They've got a governor and his name is Pontius Pilate. Of course, we hear a lot about him later on in the story, but here he is mentioned at the very beginning. So he rules in the south around uh, the Jerusalem area, the province called Judea. Further north 
in the area where Jesus lived in Galilee was another ruler called here Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas. So he is the ruler who is responsible for the area where Jesus actually lived in Galilee. And then his brother Philip ruled in another nearby area. So Luke anchors this very firmly in history. And this reminds us that the story of Jesus is a historical story. And no one is more particular about emphasising that than Luke. I've mentioned in earlier episodes uh, his great interest in a historical way of thinking, in an orderly account, in research and eyewitness testimony. And here he marks the beginning of the public ministry of John the Baptist and then Jesus very closely following by identifying a particular moment in history with all these um, authorities in place. He even mentions the high priests in Jerusalem, Caiaphas and his father-in-law Annas, who we will hear more about later on. And John emerges in a very sudden way. It says he'd been living in the wilderness. Well, in that particular area is a wilderness or, or semi-desert area known as the Judean wilderness. And it appears that John had lived the life of a, of a hermit, of a recluse, um, away from society uh, in some form for a number of years in his adult life. He would now be presumably around the age of 30. So in his 20s, we can imagine him living rather separate from society. Maybe he went home from time to time, but he lived largely on his own and very much aware of his destiny and the fact that he really had to um, fulfill a, a challenging role that was going to come very suddenly. He knew that he was going to be a prophet. Now, the Jews had a very high regard for prophets. The Old Testament has a record of some of the great prophets of Israel who wrote the books, which we, we now call the prophetic works, and some of the other prophets who, whose actions are recorded like Elijah and Elisha. But for a period of about 400 years, the Jews had not recognised anyone as having the status of a true prophet whose words they felt represented the voice of God to the nation. So we're talking of a period of uh, spiritual greyness and lack of clarity um, into which John came. And yet uh, the words given at the time of his birth, uh, Luke 1 verse 76, the prophetic word was, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. So John the Baptist is going to be a very remarkable figure. He's aware of his calling. He's waiting for it. And the text says that at this particular time, the word of the Lord came to him. In other words, he knew this is the time to get moving. And he started preaching. And he started baptizing people. We'll talk a little bit more about baptism in a moment. Along the eastern side of the nation of Israel runs the Jordan River from the north to the south. And in the north, uh, it's fed by the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, a beautiful freshwater lake where Jesus lived just near uh, the lake. And the, the River Jordan is the main river 
in the whole country and runs from north to south. And this is the river that John chose to uh, start his baptismal work. And probably it was further south towards Jerusalem, towards the capital city. In fact, the early church has always uh, tended to view the, that, that particular area as the place where John baptised. Within reach of Jerusalem, and this is an important point for our story, Jerusalem was the capital city and John wanted to be within reach of the capital city. Now we've read the extraordinary things that he began to say. Uh, he called the people to change, to change their lives. And he called the people to prepare for something to change in their country. He spoke as if there was going to be some kind of a division in their country, that, that God was either going to judge people or give them salvation through the Messiah coming. It was a very dramatic message, as if to say, this particular time is very, very significant for the nation. But why did the crowds come? Why would you come to hear somebody preaching quite aggressively by the River Jordan uh, who was unknown. He had no status, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't known in Jerusalem. He was, if you like, a hermit who lived in the Judean wilderness. Well, the crowds came principally because the Holy Spirit was on John. And it's amazing, when the Holy Spirit empowers a person, people will come and listen to him or her with the message they bring. There was also, I think, a spiritual emptiness in the people. There's this sense of a longing for something to happen in the country, a feeling of being oppressed by the Romans. The religious system is a bit dull and nothing seems to be happening. No prophetic voice has been heard. There's a hope that the Messiah will come. Could John be that Messiah? People came down to the river and large crowds, we're talking uh, no doubt of thousands of people, came to hear John. Luke very clearly says that he fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah. I, I love this prophecy, that John will be a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So literally comes from the wilderness and calls people to prepare. He's sort of opening up the way for God to come. And that's really what prophets do. They open up the way, they make clear what God intends to do and they help people align themselves to that reality as it comes. But let's talk for a moment about the significance of baptism. Now Jews didn't use baptism as a regular part of their religion. What we mean by baptism here is a single immersion of the whole body in water as a sign of cleansing. The Jews had a way of identifying their religious affiliation and that was circumcision of infant boys. Now if you were a non-Jew and you joined the Jewish religion you went through a form of baptism. So they would use that for non-Jews but not for their own people. So baptism wasn't a routine uh, initiation ceremony in Judaism at the time. And so when this baptism was used, it was a prophetic sign of a fresh start. 
and also a fresh start that could incorporate anybody, not just Jews, but other people as well. So it's very dramatic and new. People wouldn't have seen anything like this before. John then spoke about practical repentance. He said, produce fruits in keeping with repentance. The word repentance means to change your mind, therefore to change your actions. It's basically turning your life around. It's not about words. It's about the reality of what's happening inside you. And it's very interesting that John gives three very graphic examples. To the people who are wealthy, he said, if you're serious about God, you need to actually be serious about sharing your wealth. If you've got two coats, give one away. If you've got more food than you need, you can share it with the people who haven't got food. That was quite a challenging message. People tend to like to have religion without affecting their materialism. But Christianity is not like that. The second group he addressed were tax collectors. And it was interesting. He said to them that they should only collect the amount of money that was their legal responsibility to collect. Now, the system in those days was such that tax collectors were told by the Romans, you need to collect a certain amount of money and give it to the Roman authorities. And then they were given the freedom to collect extra beyond that, which they could keep for themselves. It was an informal system open to tremendous corruption. And so John the Baptist puts his finger on this and says, you really ought to only collect what you are obliged to do by your contract to the state. Now, many of us in different parts of the world will be very familiar with the fact that those in authority can use bribes and extortion to get money uh, and goods out of us that really their public office doesn't allow them to do. Tax collectors is one example. Police is a very common example uh, in many countries where you have to bribe them in order to gain what you need. And for soldiers, he said, don't extort money or manipulate people. So soldiers were very commonly able to commandeer people to carry loads for them. Uh, they were forced to give them money in order to let them pass if they met them on the road. So soldiers could use their power uh, to exploit people. That is an extremely common reality in our world today, as some of you will be very aware of. I want to focus for a few moments on verses 15 to 18, because this is the main statement that John gives to explain what it's all about. What is he actually doing? In the earlier verses, he's basically calling the Jews to respond to his message and the, and the coming Messiah, um, and he warns them that there'd be judgment if they fail to do so. He continues and intensifies his teaching here in verse 15 through to verse 18. Let me just read it again. The people were waiting expectantly, were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. So the first thing to note here is that this expectation of the Messiah, the deliverer coming to the country, was a very real expectation. And they thought, well, maybe John is going to deliver us, particularly deliver us from Roman occupation and corrupt religious rulers. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one is who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he'll baptise you with the Holy Spirit 
and fire. So John very clearly says, I'm pointing you to somebody else. While I use water to baptize you, the person coming after me will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful, powerful description of what will happen when people come to believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit's power as they did on the day of Pentecost onwards. And Jesus uh, is described here as having the power to baptize in the Holy Spirit, to give us such a powerful experience of God's Spirit that it's like being inundated in water, which of course is a very powerful physical experience. He says he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, basically, there's a choice between Holy Spirit and fire because he goes on to say his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And this is a fire of judgment on those in Israel who rejected this opportunity to believe in Jesus. So this fire is not to be sought. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is to be sought. In other words, Jesus will bring a division in Israel and those in Israel who are open should choose to believe in him, receive the Holy Spirit, which will ensure you against God's judgment. Now, at the very end, there's just a brief reference to what happens to John after this. The ruler Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas, who I mentioned ruled in Galilee, further to the north, and in some of the eastern districts as well. John challenged him about the fact that he'd, he'd married a lady, Herodias, who used to be married to his brother, and it was illegal by Jewish standards to do that. He did a lot of other evil things. And so John ended up, shortly after this, in prison. And later on, in fact, he will be executed, as we'll see um, in a future episode. So this is a very dramatic opening section to the story about Jesus. Jesus is about to be introduced to the stage. And the, there are a number of important reflections that I would make on this story. Number one, just thinking about John, the sheer courage of the man is remarkable. He's on his own. He has no status, no support group, no wealth, no heritage. All he has is his calling from God. He could have been very bitterly opposed and even stopped in his tracks or even put in prison immediately. And it wasn't long until he was put in prison. So I want to first just reflect on, on, on the fact that John the Baptist showed incredible courage as he opened the door for the coming of Jesus. This was going to be a controversial moment in the life of the nation of Israel. We'll see that controversy uh, all the way through the life of Jesus uh, as we continue our studies. The second thing I notice as a reflection is that the gospel was offered to Israel first. The Jews had this opportunity. But interestingly enough, even in this passage, we see that the gospel is going to be offered to all the nations. For example, in verse 6, quoting Isaiah 40, and all people will see God's salvation, beginning to refer to uh, the other nations of the world. 
And when John says that, you know, uh, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones, he's basically saying your racial heritage as a Jew isn't going to ensure your salvation. It's going to be faith. And that could apply to anyone. My two final reflections before we finish this episode. First one is that we begin to see here a very important principle of the Christian faith that emerges again and again. To become a believer in Jesus is not a matter just of what you think in your mind, believing a few historical facts, thinking that he is probably the son of God, thinking that he died uh, for us on the cross. It's not just an intellectual idea or a mental idea. Christianity is also completely of the heart. And this word repentance describes it very powerfully. Repentance meaning a change, a turning around of the whole personality. Our will, our mind, our actions um, are all implied in it. And John points out very graphically that repentance is a very practical thing. When you become a believer, you have to change some of your behaviour. You have to turn away from things you did in the past that are wrong and you have to follow a new way. You will have to mentally believe in Jesus the Messiah and what he did on the cross. We'll come to talk about that more in later episodes, but your lifestyle will also change. So nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only, as a badge, as a historical tradition, is not real. Christianity is in the heart. It involves the change of the individual. And three examples are given by John. The wealthy who share their wealth with the poor, the tax collectors who are honest, and the soldiers who don't use their power to exploit people. We could multiply these kind of examples to the business community, to political leaders, to what you do in the marketplace, how we conduct our family relationships. Morality and practical actions need to change. And as the story goes on, we'll find out in what ways they change more specifically. But John is highlighting this issue. Christianity is about a fundamental personal change. Christianity is also, in conclusion, about a dynamic encounter with God's Holy Spirit, described graphically here as a baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful reality. And we'll talk more about this in subsequent episodes. But John points out that Jesus has the power to bring God's Holy Spirit to every individual person in such a way that we feel overwhelmed, inundated, empowered, strengthened, transformed by God's presence within us and around us. And so with these words, Luke introduces John the Baptist and also by implication introduces Jesus's public ministry, which is going to be the subject of our next few episodes. So thank you for joining with us for series two, episode one of The Life of Jesus. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.